to another episode of the Positively Michael podcast. This is your host, Glittery Socks, and I am joined by not one, not two, but three of the fellow leaders of PositivelyMichael.com. We have Ivy, Larth, and Sparkle Socks. Say hi, everyone. Hi. (laughs) So we've got an action-packed show. Uh, Hopefully this week we're all awake. You guys know last week Ivy was a little bit sleepy, so she's done some jumping jacks to wake up. We've got Sparkle Socks here, who always brings the party, and Larth, who is the one who keeps the whole show together. So (laughs) we are hopefully going to make this fun and exciting and go through our new exciting segments and our old segments with the news. We've got lots to cover. So before we do that, we're going to do our commercial, and we'll be right back with the first news story. Looking for a fun-filled online community where it's all Michael all the time? Then come join our family at PositivelyMichael.com. We keep our forum fresh, intelligent, and open-minded to learn about who Michael truly was and what he contributed to the world. Join in the thousands of discussion topics on our forum, ranging from Michael's music to his personal life, scan the collection of rare pictures and interviews, discuss a book or two on Michael's life and legacy, or just shoot the breeze with other members. Whether you appreciate general pop culture or just a die hard Michael Jackson fan. Everyone has a place at PositivelyMichael.com. Make sure to stop by today to see what you've been missing. All right. So I will pass it over to Lars to start off the news. All right. Well, this first news story is something very exciting to all Michael Jackson fans, and I'm sure it's also something that's making all Michael Jackson fans who are not students at NYU very jealous. So it's not new news that Questlove has been teaching a course about classic albums at NYU, but recently a story describing um, this class, specifically on Michael Jackson Day, whenever they were listening to Off the Wall, has come out. So Questlove, who many of you may know from The Roots, in teaching this class is joined by Harry Weinger, who is an industry veteran, and he's the current VP of A&R um, Universal Music Enterprises. He, so he's joining Questlove as a co-professor, and they're playing snippets of songs. Uh, they said that they rarely play songs in full. They actually let Starlight, which is, as many of you know, um, kind of the original version of Thriller before it, to quote Questlove, got all Halloween. Um, apparently they let that one play longer than normal. Um, so the students in this class are learning about Off the Wall, um, as one of their classic albums. Um, this article points out that Michael was 21 at the time that he left his family and his band for a solo career. And that is appropriate because the median age of the students in this class is about 21. So it's sort of 21-year-olds translating to a 21-year-old longer at a different time period um, than we're used to. So Michael Jackson Day includes hearing original demos, which would they're on a USB drive, sent to Questlove as a 40th birthday present when he was on the set of Late Night with Jimmy Fallon. So... I'm sure that's something we all want to get our hands on, is this USB so wait, drive. can I stop you there and ask you, this USB drive was sent by... It doesn't say who it was sent by. 
It just says it's, it was a USB drive sent to Questlove while he was on the set for Jimmy Fallon. And we assume that these are, like, never-before-heard demos? As, I mean, I'm assuming. I'm assuming that if you're taking this class at NYU, that you're getting some good stuff. Yeah, they're extremely... This is why I love and hate Questlove. Yeah, they're extremely rare demos from what the story says. So, I don't know. I mean, I'm I'm assuming, like, the estate has got to be behind this, right? For him to have permission to do all this? Don't they have to be? I, don't I mean, know. if he's playing never be. before heard stuff, then they probably are, but I don't think they have to be. Well, because yeah, it's not a a pro, it's a class, it's a academic class, so I don't know the laws around that. The reason why I'm asking is because the demos would have had to have been sent by. I mean, it's like some of the demos I have not heard that he mentioned. So, and I felt like I had heard just about everything. <laughs> so I don't know. It seems like it's got to be somebody on the inside who has access to all of his, especially his early, early stuff, which is what it really seems that Questlove is focusing on is his early solo years. Yeah. Well, it could be someone on the inside that isn't on the estate. Like, I'm sure there's a bunch of recording oh, yeah. videos that Questlove has in common with And I'm Michael. sure with the combination of these two professors, they've got lots of connections between them. Oh, uh, Questlove. I know you're single. I'm single. <laughs> what about meeting old glittery socks and waxing philosophical about Michael oh, Jackson music? Okay, let's, let's leave Questlove alone. We are Twitter buddies, and... I mean, I'm his Twitter buddy. I'm also his Twitter buddy. That like, why does your Sparkle Socks Twitter have more weight than my Glittery Socks Twitter? I mean, I've been doing this to death for years. I joined Twitter just to flirt with Questlove. So your stalking Questlove overrides my sheer desire to have an academic and intellectual discussion about Michael Jackson's demos. Yeah, <laughs> and I think my Roots concert track record might be yours. We're going to take this war to the forum, but I will just reiterate for the record, Questlove, I'm in love with you. Please continue, Laura. Uh, all right. Well, they went on to play um, the studio session of She's Out of My Life, um, making it clear that at that point, Michael had just been dumped by Tatum O'Neill for his lack of intimacy, um, and Ooh. that maybe that's why he starts to cry. Um, uh, and he also apologizes in that song when he cries for messing up, which I think so, is very cute. We're <laughs> going to talk about this later. Point. We're going to talk about this later when we get to the book discussion, but there's actually, um, some clarity about the crying and she's out of my oh, life. Oh yeah, so that's true. I will share. We will talk about that when we get to this discussion about uh, man in the music. So that's a perfect um, lead into that discussion later in the show. Yep. So keep tuned in guys. So yeah, that's basically the gist of it. That's how this class at NYU is going. This classic albums class. I'd love to hear not just about Michael Jackson day, but I would love to hear about all the other days as well. I am so jealous yeah, that's, like, unfair. Super unfair. I graduated from college a couple of years ago, and I'm so mad right now that this wasn't available for me. Oh, oh. my gosh. But um, I'm going to jump into our next news point. Oh, can I, can I just say something to follow up before we finish that discussion? Um, 
So the so for the class at NYU, one thing that I think is interesting and is worth note is that so far NYU, Duke, I think Yale, and I know a school in Texas at least all have academic, like intellectually rigorous courses about Michael Jackson's impact on music. And I think that that is remarkable considering that he only, he would have been what, 50, 53 years old right now. That's unbelievable to think that there's, there are courses about his body of work when he was only, only 53 years old. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's not like we're studying Picasso years, you know, centuries later and decades later, we're talking about someone who had so much impact on the musical landscape that it's worthy of academic and intellectual pursuit. I just think that that's just so cool. Totally agree. Yeah. So I just wanted to say that. I just think it's cool. Sorry. Continue. Okay. Um, now we're going to jump into Catherine's AEG lawsuit. There was actually a lot that came out about this over the past couple of weeks. Um, the judge, Superior Court, LA Superior Court Judge Yvette Palazuelos, she issued a tentative ruling that um, Catherine can move forward with the lawsuit, contending that AEG Live negligently hired Dr. Conrad Murray as a singer's personal physician. Um, she also said that she's leaning toward tossing aside all other claims that could hold AEG liable for Jackson's death, and I assume that would include all other family claims and any previous claims that had been fi- filed by anyone else besides this one specific one. Oh, okay, wait a s- So, is this one include the one that Michael Amir Williams was filing, the class action lawsuit on behalf of the employees? Is that linked into Catherine's, or is that a separate lawsuit to AEG? I don't think that's linked into Catherine's. I think that's separate. Because I remember that the judge tried to link Joe and Catherine's lawsuits at one point, and I don't remember what came of that. I think Joe's might have gotten dismissed, but I can't recall. Does anyone remember? I'm pretty sure it got dismissed. Yeah. Well, yeah. I think this this recent news that came out just said that it's going to be Catherine versus AEG Live and not AEG Inc., which is the parent company. Wow. So let me continue. Um, the The judge did not say that they would be issuing um, a final ruling at any specific date, but the defense attorneys, of course, are moving for dismissal of the entire complaint, saying that two years of litigation failed to show that the company or executives did anything wrong. Of course, we know that Catherine originally sued in September 2010, and this trial has been scheduled for early April, so that's a month away. It's coming up very soon. The attorney for AEG Live, Marvin Putnam, he maintains strongly that his clients never hired Murray and that they're not responsible for bringing Murray into his life and that Murray was just one of many doctors that Michael had personal relationships with and therefore they don't have anything to do with his hiring. The plaintiff's attorney, Kevin Boyle, declined to comment after the hearing, but as we know, that's kind of a a newer name for Catherine's attorneys. And um, I'm not sure if this is one of the ones that that has been, like, appointed to her by the estate or not. I don't think so. 
I don't know. Do you have any, I'm not, do you guys have any, I don't recognize I'm not the name. sure. I think that, but I think that that's yeah. the same person that was involved with the suit about saying that Murray had to cooperate with Catherine. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Okay. Um, so Putnam said that the, that Murray was not board certified and the fact that he was in debt was irrelevant. And Putnam, who of course is the defense attorney here, said that Jackson had a drug problem for years before he entered into any agreements to perform on behalf of AEG Live. Judge Palazuelos also said in her ruling that she's leaning toward dismissing Timothy Luwecki. Sorry if I don't pronounce that right. But he's AEG Inc.'s president and CEO, and she's leaning toward dismissing him and all of his company as defendants. And, of course, that's what I mentioned before. Because AEG Inc. are, she says they're two separate entities, and that that AEG Inc. really has no interest here. And Lewecki said that he'd only had one meeting with Jackson, and that he never met or communicated with Conrad Murray. Mm. So he will probably not be. So AEG Inc. will probably not be included in the lawsuit, and it will only be AEG Live. Um. The tentative ruling, of course, would keep Paul Gongaware, who is the CEO of Concerts West Division of AEG Live, and then AEG Live President and CEO Brandon Phillips on the case. It's scheduled to start April 2nd, and of course, Gongaware and the AEG Live people said that they had nothing to do with Michael's medical treatment, they never pressured him to take propofol. They had no knowledge of what was going on in his house at night. And um, I guess we're probably going to see this play out in trial now. How do you guys feel about that? Like, it's, it's, this is a long time coming, but now we're, we might actually see some movement on this in the coming weeks. Um, this article specifically is really interesting to me because I never... I guess the way that I was thinking it, thinking of it is that I was thinking of it in more of a way that... If AEG was so gung-ho to get these concerts started, that maybe that somehow affected Murray's hiring. So I think it's interesting that the way it's being approached in the news right now is that they're saying, oh, well, we didn't specifically hire Murray, or, you know, we didn't ever encourage Michael to take propofol, because that's nothing that I ever really thought of being connected to this case at all. Well, I think... The thing that I'm the most perplexed about with all of this is how AEG Inc. is getting off the hook. So from what you just read, they're saying we never met Michael, we never, you know, met Murray, but what, or maybe they said, I think you said maybe they interacted with him once or something, but. Yeah, they said they talked to Michael in 2008, but they never met Murray and never communicated with him. So I'm a little bit confused about the lineage between AEG and AEG Live. Is it like Nordstrom and Nordstrom Rack where there's one name, like one parent company, but two individual companies or two individual entities under it? I guess I'm not exactly clear about how one could be liable, but the other would not be. That's what it sounds like. It sounds like AEG Live was originally created as a division of AEG Link. Mm -hmm. I mean, AEG Inc. Mm -hmm. 
but now that they, they are completely separate companies, so one should not be held responsible for the other's commitments. And that's why they set up subsidiaries and stuff that way, I guess, to keep one from being liable for everything. Oh. Okay, well, that makes sense. So, I mean, you know, before I remember saying I didn't think there was any way that this case would go to trial because I was really sure they would settle. But now that the judge has ruled that Murray has to uh, cooperate with Catherine, I, I mean, I feel like this thing is going full steam ahead. And and if it does, those emails that we read from AEG that got links to the media, oh, was that by Brian Oxman? I can't remember. Or was it Howard Mann? Howard it was Mann. somebody That's who was we, like Howard Mann. Howard Mann. Yeah. But in those emails, man, it did not paint AEG very well at all. Because and and in the emails and during the trial, they read correspondence where the people from AEG Live were like, "Murray seems like a great guy. Listen to him, Murray, Murray, Murray." So I don't know how they're going to say we didn't know anything about Murray, but then they were making qualitative observations about him that led, you know, that were telling. Um, uh, uh, Kenny Ortega that he needed to keep going and not worry about it because Murray seemed like a good guy. Well, weren't those leaked illegally? Could that hurt the trial because it's like it was illegally um, released evidence? See, I don't know how that would work. I mean, I, I feel like that stuff still has to be admissible in court because it's all official correspondence. I just know AEG was upset because they were saying that they felt like um, it was like trying the case in the media before it ever saw a courtroom. Yeah. So, well, I think it's a little too late for that. <laughs> yes. It, it's like, I think the case okay. started getting tried in the media on June 25th, 2009. Yeah. Yeah. Let's power forward though. We have a lot of stuff to get to. Yeah. Well, I guess we'll see what happens with the trial in um, April, unless they come to some sort of settlement prior to then. So we'll see what happens in the next couple of weeks, and we'll keep you guys posted. All right. Well, while we move on with news, um, I'm just going to repeat something that I said in the Bullet Show last week, which is that Cirque du Soleil's Vegas residency, Michael Jackson 1, has been announced. Um, there's many, many dates. So if you want to go to the show, you can go to the Surf website to see all the dates. Um, if you're a member of the CERC Club, like if you register on the CERC website, you can get access to pre-sale tickets now. So if you want to go to that, you guys should go and get your tickets. We're all going. We're all yep. excited about it. And yeah, we've we got are. our tickets. So uh, get on that. Make sure that you see this show if you want to see it. I'm super excited about it. Um, But now on to something that is a... Uh, well, I guess it's still kind of awesome in a way. So about a week ago, um, a warrant went out for Arnie Klein's arrest. I'm sure at this point <laughs> all of you know who Arnie Klein is, but if you don't, he was Michael Jackson's dermatologist. Um, so he filed for bankruptcy in 2011, and an arrest went out for him after he refused to forfeit over 100 pieces of artwork and a Ferrari to the bankruptcy trustee. So what? whenever this happened, there was all this stuff. TMZ was saying that, you know, Arnie Klein was telling them, like, oh, it's a fraud. None of this is going on. Um, so that's TMZ. 
But then days, just a few days later, another story came out that authorities knocked on Arnie's door and he told them where to find everything. Um, he, he told them where to find all the artwork, which includes artwork by Andy Warhol, including the famous Marilyn Monroe painting, um, paintings what? by Robert Graham, David Hockney, uh, Roy Lichtenstein, Renoir, Rodin, like big, big names. <laughs> So apparently the cops came and knocked on his door, and then he spilled the beans and told them where to find everything, and they didn't arrest him for being cooperative. So my favorite part of this story is that but the day before he got arrested, he was like, this is BS. Let them come to me. I don't care. Like He was like posturing and being all like, come at me. And then they knocked on his door, and he was like, yeah, it's over there, and <laughs> you can get the car at this address. Uh, Please don't arrest me. So nothing happened to him because he was cooperative. Pretty much. Um, I mean, that was the last news this story. Reminds out. Me, <laughs> this reminds me of the Plead the Fifth skit on Dave Chappelle. <laughs> 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 yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Yeah, he was a tough guy until the cops came, and then all of a sudden he had nothing to say at all mm-hmm. except for telling them what they wanted to hear. Mm-hmm. I don't know, maybe he thought that they didn't care enough about the bankruptcy trustee, but come on, man. You've got all, you've got, like, the Maryland painting and a Ferrari, and you think that they don't care about you I just think that if they can't bring this man down for his medical malpractice, get him however you can. So dang it, (laughs) if you gotta go and arrest him for paintings in a car, then do it. I don't care. I agree. And if you can't get in for the medical malpractice, then you're not looking far enough. Because I think anyone who's ever seen this guy get on a camera knows that he should not be practicing medicine. Yeah. Okay, moving right along. Guess what? Janet Jackson is married. Guess when it happened? A long time ago. What? So apparently there was a ton of... Y'all know Janet um, loves a secret marriage. She loves a secret marriage. Um, There's a lot of rumors about her... Being engaged to Qatari tycoon Wissam Almana. And there's a lot of rumors about her them planning a lavish wedding. It's going to be $20 million. They were going to have a fleet of p- private jets fly people from the U.S. to Qatar. Um, it was going to happen in the spring. And apparently, Janet came out in a statement to Entertainment Tonight <laughs> and said, quite simply... The rumors regarding an extravagant wedding are simply not true. Last year, we were married in a quiet, private, and beautiful ceremony. Our wedding gifts to one another were contributions to our respective favorite children's charities. So they're already married. Um, <laughs> okay, then. Osam Almana, he's the managing director of Almada Retail. He's 37 years old. Um, and he's and Almada Retail is a, a family company for him, and, and they're luxury corporate group in the Middle East. And Janet's 46 now, so there is a little bit of a nine-year age difference. So get it, Miss Jackson. Big cougar. And cougar, yeah. She's married again. So this is private wedding number three. So here's the thing. Two? When I first, like, okay. She got married last year. We all know what happened last year. It was a wildfire of madness, and her mother got kidnapped. And Michael's children went rogue on Twitter. And then she tried to videotape Paris while she was snatching her phone away in the driveway. <laughs> there was a lot that happened last year. Do you all think the family even had any concept that Janet got married? 
They had to have. They certainly did it in marriage number one. <laughs> they didn't know about marriage number one or number two, right? You know, I know if they my know about opinion on Janet. She has said nobody. Yeah. <laughs> I, like, I just feel like this goes to show also, if she was married last summer when all that mess was going on with Jermaine and, um, and Reedy and the kidnapping, kidnap gate 2012. I, it really is a whole nother subject for a whole nother day, but it's just sort of like, it just goes to show she probably really did believe that Randy was right. And all that stuff about the estate was wrong. It, because it's not like she needs money. I mean, goodness gracious, she didn't need money before. And now she's married to a billionaire. And everybody was speculating that she was trying to like, get some sort of like, get her feelers in, on Michael's inheritance, but Janet doesn't need that money. So I think Janet is just a sneaky chick, <laughs> not even sneaky, but, but just like a, like she's just above it all, I guess. Maybe she feels, well, I don't know. Yeah. I wow. Don't, I don't understand I just, how celebrities hmm. can get married and people not find out about it. Like, that's amazing that she can do that. Isn't there a marriage license or something? Or maybe if they got married out of the country, there's not a marriage license here. Maybe that's how they did it. I mean, if you can get married and it doesn't get through TMZ, then you're doing something really, uh, really right. I just like how her statement was like, no, we're not planning a wedding. We actually already got married last year. Google it. <laughs> it was just like, oh, sorry. Yeah. Well, congratulations, Janet. Hopefully that you'll be very happy and can, I mean, it seems like she has sort of been far removed from everything since all that stuff happened last year. So maybe she's just decided she's just moving, you know living her life, not thinking about the drama of her family, and she's just going on. So if that's the case, good for her. I have a sneaky feeling that next time we see that bald head or Annie Jackson pop up again, I think a little Janet Jackson head will be there, too. Mm-hmm. I think that they're in it, in it for good. I really do. Well, I mean, I definitely think she loves her brother, especially her brothers, but especially Randy. And I think that I don't know how she, I don't know what's going on with the rest of them, but those two are like thick as thieves for sure. I agree with you about that, Ivy. So I don't know. Maybe Randy was, maybe Randy was at the wedding and nobody else was. I just have a very hard time believing that Janet got married and no one from that family knew about it and then didn't spill the beans. That's why I wonder if they just didn't know, if they just had no idea she was married. Do you think Catherine knew she got married? Who knows if Catherine knew? But, yeah, but congratulations to Janet, and I hope that this wedding for her is as um, wonderful as the others were, and that they, she can be happy, and so good for her. But I think that probably will wrap it up for news. Um, you can check out all other news stories or many more on our forum, PositivelyMichael.com, but those were probably the four most commented stories on um, for this week. So... We will now move on to our one of our new segments that we introduced last week, Seven Inches In, with Sparkle Socks. And I got to say, Sparkle Socks, you had mixed reviews on Sunra, I have to say. I know, I know. I loved it. I loved, I found the music to be, I found tenderness to be really beautiful. I found his music overall to be very interesting and intriguing, and I definitely have enjoyed listening to it and trying to expand my mind. I also am a jazz fan. 
Um, the people on the forum and on Twitter who I think had more questionable responses were people who admittedly are not jazz fans. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I don't know. Uh, Lars, what did you think about it? I loved it, but I do like jazz. Um, I was mm-hmm. listening last night. I was on a highway in the middle of the night for like four hours, and I was listening to jazz radio and thinking about Sun Ra. <laughs> and I couldn't wait to tell you how much I loved it. <laughs> well, I'm glad that you guys liked it. And even for everyone who didn't really like it, you know, it's one of those things that is something new. So mm-hmm. now you know how you feel about it. And I think it's good to at least have those experiences. And it is kind of a dissonant thing. So it is something that not everybody would be into. Well, I would like to give you one quick comment um, from one of our members, A Love Supreme. Oh, yes. She gave a, she just gave a really, um, she was just saying that when she listened to Moondance, she started to wonder what it is about discordant music that stirs such intense feelings of ecstasy. And she was just, she really, really loved the selections. And she's just saying, she's so excited that you brought avant-garde jazz to the forum and to the Michael Jackson fandom. And I agree. I, I think that to me, I think it's really cool because we know that Michael was also inspired by this genre of music. So I think it was really interesting for you to introduce that and to give us an opportunity to uh, listen to Sun Ra. So I loved it, and I'm looking forward to seeing who you chose for this week's selection. Yay! And I'll be back on the forum, too, like later this weekend and later this week to kind of talk to people. Yes, that would be great. See how y'all feel. Well, this week I had a totally different choice planned Mm -hmm. out. And the other night, I guess Wednesday night, a friend of mine played a song on his phone and I immediately turned around and went, who is this? This is amazing. I need to know who this girl is. And I have become obsessed with her. I love her. And so I immediately changed my choice and I am giving this to you because I need for her music to be shared. Um, Her name is Alex Isley. She, if her name sounds familiar, she is the daughter of Ernie Isley, who Mm. was the guitarist in the group, the Isley Brothers. Yeah. So with that kind of heritage, you'd expect music to kind of literally be in her blood. And, um, but even though she did grow up in the studio with her dad and uncles, she says that she came into a love of music on her own. She started singing when she was three. She started, she performed in public for the first time when she was five, which is a lot like Michael's. So she started at a really early age. She's multi-talented. She's been a songwriter for several years. She's a jazz vocalist. Um, her voice, she has a beautiful voice, which you guys will get to hear. And she does her own production. Hmm. When the production, at least on the songs that I've heard of hers from her EP, is excellent. She she does have perfect pitch, so she can reproduce any musical note that she hears just from hearing it. She has synesthesia, meaning she sees colors associated with sounds and music, which I've always thought was the coolest disorder. I wish I had it. <laughs> <laughs> and producing Pharrell, um, Pharrell Williams from the Neptunes has that also. He actually has an album called Seeing Sounds, um, which was a pretty good album. But anyway... Alex's music is definitely rooted in R&B, 
but she studied jazz at UCLA, and she cites those genres as influences, as well as folk, electronic. She said that she listens to everything, and everything influences her, and it's about expanding and growing and pushing things forward. So I really, really love her music. So I am giving you guys, for your A-side, it is a track from her EP, which came out last summer, I believe, The Love Art Memoirs, and the name of the song is Into Orbit. crush on somebody at the moment you might want to listen to it alone or with them it's a it's a woozy (laughs) and the b-side is actually a cover of i can't help it which is beautiful her EP is a free download I'm also going to give you a link to her EP and I've had it on repeat all week and also a link to she has a covers album also so you also get two albums with your two singles wow I'm excited I mean I like the Isley Brothers but I did not even I never knew they had a daughter who had a career in music. This is super exciting. Me either. And a totally different friend of mine that share we share music with each other all the time. And the friend who I heard her with the night before, I couldn't remember her name when I got back home. So the next day I was like, ah, do you know this girl? Have you ever heard of her? And I was coming down with names. And she was like, oh, yeah, I've been listening to her since last year. I was like, why didn't you ever share this with me? She's amazing. So And now you're now sharing it. That's right. Now you're sharing it with the entire MJ fandom that listens to our show. That's very exciting. <laughs> all right. Well, I, I hope that all of you guys in the MJ fam will listen to this artist you said alex isley's her name Mm -hmm. um and hopefully you will have more resonance with this than you did with (laughs) sunra because there is some skepticism there but i think um i mean this sounds like it's going to be pretty cool and it sounds like she draws from several genres which is also very similar to michael which i find very exciting All right. Well, Lars, are have you heard any of Alex's music before, or is this going to be your first time? I have not. You know, I feel like I knew that they had a daughter, that there was, like, um, I feel like I've heard her name, so I must have heard her talked about, but I, I, dev- I never realized that they had a, a kid that was making music of her own. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm definitely looking forward to it, so Sparkle Socks, 
thank you for your selection. I think, um, you know, we will see how it is received this time because you still need to regain your title as the sensei of all music and all that is music on our forum. I don't think it's fair to trash Sparkle Socks's um, reputation yet only because like, some people didn't like like Sun Ra because if you like look up Sun Ra, he's like one of the most respected rock musicians of all time and like widely by music critics. So yeah. everyone's going to have their own two cents. And I, I actually really, really did love it. I mean, I, like I said, I know that some people spoke out vocally and said they weren't as excited, but I think that that's the point of this segment is to broaden all of our musical knowledge and to expose us to a wide variety of artists. Um, as we'll talk about in just a minute with the book, Michael was inspired by musicians all across every genre. So I'm really enjoying this opportunity to sort of be expanded as well. Thank you for expanding me, Sparkle Sauce. <laughs> you are very welcome. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> yeah, somehow that didn't come out quite right. So maybe we should end this segment now. <laughs> Sparkle Sox enjoyed that a little bit too much. I feel the I feel like a weird vibe coming through my Skype right now. So All okay, right. So all everybody right. get ready for Alex Isley. Um Sparkle Sox, hopefully you can join us for this next discussion because we are moving on to Pause Mike's pages. And oh my gosh. Oh my gosh, guys. If you have not picked up Man in the Music the creative life and work of Michael Jackson by Mr. Awesome Joe Vogel. I suggest that you don't crawl, don't sit, don't walk. You need to run your little behind to Barnes and Nobles and buy this book or get it off of Amazon and start reading it with us. It is so, so good. It really is. Oh my gosh. I have literally, like I, like I said, I had read sections but sitting down in this exercise and reading this book from the beginning as Joe intended, uh, and then also I totally was geeking out so hard that I actually, since we did Off the Wall last week, I literally got the songs from Off the Wall and listened to them as I was reading the information about them. It was unbelievable, and it took me back to when we did the Summer of Michael celebration on our forum, and we really spent time going through each era of Michael's music. That's, I mean, except for this is even a more academic exercise because he really does go through so much information about the music. I'm just loving this experience. So really, really, before we get into this, just want to say, if you have not purchased Man in the Music, go purchase it and read it with us. You will not regret it, and it will really help you to appreciate Michael's music on a whole new level. What did you guys think about the first segment that we read? I thought it was really, really great. There's actually one quote that really, really struck me that I'm looking for because I don't want to misquote it, that um, it, it wasn't in the off-the-wall section. It was whenever he was talking about um, music videos and just... At the, in the introduction. Yeah, yes. in the introduction, whenever he was talking about how he really, like, uh, merged media together... It's on page eight and page nine. Yeah, yeah. Book. I'm looking at it right now. I think I found it. It's um it's from music critic, um, Hampton Stevens. He said the oft repeated conventional wisdom that Jackson's videos made MTV so changed the music industry is only half true. 
It's more like the music industry ballooned to encompass Jackson's talent and shrunk down again without him. Videos didn't matter before Michael, wow. and they ceased to matter at almost the precise cultural moment that he stopped producing great work. So that yeah. is... That was... Uh, yeah, that wow. was one of the quotes that... Um, there was... First of all, I just have to say... Joe, you rocked this introduction so hard. There were so many quotes like that. Like, he really sets up my, like, anyone who's a skeptic at all, when you read the introduction, you're like, okay, we're about to read about a genius. I mean, he laid this out. Um, And for those of you who don't know, Joe was actually working on this book years before Michael passed away. And he had been hoping that he was going to interview Michael to sort of be the capstone of his analysis of his music. So the book was already well underway when Michael passed away. And I really, really hate that Michael didn't get to read this book because I just think he would have thoroughly, thoroughly loved it. We got some, we got comments about um, people's reading experiences and just going back off of the introduction since that was part of what we read. So Red Corvette on our forum says, I found the introduction to be heart-wrenchingly perceptive and understanding of Michael as a complex human being. I cried through a lot of it, but it's a beautiful read just the same. And Kriosh says she found it to be heartbreaking as she read about the cruelty of the critics who were too biased by Michael's tabloid persona, while Michael was all the while pouring his heart and soul into his music. And she says that she's a recent fan and she really didn't discover Michael until the summer of 2010. So she didn't experience the depth of the negativity that Michael experienced during his life. And this book has really helped her to understand the effect it must have had on him while he was still struggling to produce such amazing work and pour his soul into the music. But you know, you know what that and reminds me of is, uh, there was another, I mean, I'm not going to quote it because I don't want to go find the quote again. And I think I could get the gist of it, but there was another moment in the, uh, either the, yeah, it's in the introduction where he is talking about people who, um, like critics who have failed to see how brilliant Michael's music was because they had too much trouble looking past how, um, like bizarre he was. And he kind of said, I mm -hmm. mean, he was never normal. You guys forget that we totally accepted with open arms this guy with like a soft spoken voice and all of these, you know, crazy animals. You know, like, it was, he was never the typical idea, so why did that matter? Yeah, he, what, he, what he said, I, I read that part recently. Basically, what he said in that quote was that um, people fail to realize how much, ex like, how Michael's talent so eclipsed anything about his personal life that everyone accepted him holistically, even though he was not what would be considered to be a quote-unquote normal man in society because he wore makeup and because he um, sort of dressed differently and because he sort of was more androgynous than the typical male. And, and especially as what he mentioned in a book also was that, you know, this was the height of, like, white male grunge heavy metal and rock. Right. And here we have this man wearing sequence pants and, high like, high-water pants and eyeliner who is, like, literally emoting through his music to the point that he's changing people's lives with each song that he releases. And another part that I loved in the introduction was, uh, oh, I just was like giving this a standing ovation. He says, in, 
In its 2009 obituary, the New York Times referred to Michael's post-thriller career as a bizarre disintegration. What made his work bizarre in these years? And he basically says, you know, nothing is mentioned other than that he had a bizarre private life, which somehow seemed to equate to bad music. And then Joe basically goes down and calls out each music critic and is like, they don't explain why the personal turmoil has been given to creatively fertile for other artists, specifically Ray Charles, John Lennon, Kurt Cobain, among thousands of others, but somehow that service was not given to Michael. They also don't explain how Jackson's prolific creative output during this time of trouble, he wrote and recorded songs and released more albums and music videos in the 90s than he did in the 80s, equates to a barren period, as the Times referred to it. And... Um, he basically says, he talks about how, how Michael, um, how basically he thinks that it's not just that Michael's work was underappreciated. It's that even the music critics whose job it was to sort of shape the way the cultural perception of music were so caught up in the tabloid nonsense of what was happening to Michael that he, um, that they, that they themselves were unable to appreciate the evolution of his music. And I thought that that was so interesting because, because I guess I, I mean, maybe I'm stupid, but I always assumed that the critics were worse thinking about things holistically and were not, were at least still able to think about things holistically. And he's saying that he thinks that they actually sort of gave up after Thriller and maybe even after Bad. What do you guys think about that? Well, I definitely think that they gave up after Bad. <laughs> I think after Thriller, there was still, like, up until Bad through the 80s, um, Michael was weird, and he was thought of as weird, but it was still, like, a an interesting kind of weird, like a David Bowie kind of weird, an acceptable weird. But then when the allegations of child molestation came out and his skin kept getting lighter, then it turned to be, like, a, a non- non-artistic weird for, I guess, critics. And I think at that point, they s did stop investing in the music because who wants to be... A, a positive review is essentially an advertisement. And who wants to be aligning themselves with someone who they... or is perceived to be, like, a bad, dangerous, creepy person. Or bad, dangerous, I didn't mean to use those <laughs> words, but a creepy person. So I, I think they totally gave into the hype. They gave into the news. They probably had pressure from editors. I, I totally agree with that statement that um, critics gave up. And, and something that he says, too, just to, like, stick it to him, <laughs> he says, Many critics then and now have lavished praise on the Beatles for their growth and transformations, while Jackson has been more often characterized as a shallow record chaser whose failure to surpass the commercial success of Thriller somehow validated the perception that the music had lost its value. And I was like, that is so true. I, like, I feel like whenever I, you want to talk to people about, you know, sort of, master class of musicians and Michael being the greatest that there ever was, they sort of say, oh, well, you know, I mean, nothing was better than Thriller. Nothing was, um, you know, nothing was better than Thriller. Nothing's this, nothing's that. And then here we are, you know, 
looking back and it's um and it had nothing to do with the music it was just about the commercial appeal that michael had and and joe also says that in his estimation um and actually he agrees with um he agrees with rolling stones Mikhail gilmore he says that the later music that jackson made was some of his most interesting art some of his wittiest, most pain-filled, angriest, and by far most politically explicit and troubling music. And and he talks about that, you know, instead of looking at the coda of Black or White, which was, you know, now it's called the Panther Dance, when Michael, in the short film, when he kind of evolves into that, Joe is saying, you know, um, that that was daring and bold and interesting and creatively intriguing. But as, as Ivy just pointed out, in the context of everything else that was going on in Michael's life, it was just like, oh, that's weird. But if someone else had done that, they would have been like, wow, how amazing and insightful that they just did an entire, you know, dance monologue at the end of a short film. So anyway, just to wrap that up, I think the introduction is brilliant because Joe, in my opinion, very boldly says, look, we're just going to cut the crap. Michael was a beast a genius like greatest ever and we are going to do a thorough analysis of his music whether the critics get it or not that i just felt like it was a defiant introduction i loved it i thought that he contextualized everything that michael was going through um and i thought it was awesome oh yeah that introduction could have been its own book yeah i totally agree yes and i think it's worth noting that anthony de curtis did the opening and he was completely, completely into it. So, um, yeah, I, I think it was, it was phenomenal. Yeah. Any, any more thoughts on the introduction? Yeah. You know, I don't know. If, I don't, I feel like this may have been at the beginning of the off the wall section, but it, maybe it was in the introduction as well. If not, it'll be a good segue moving past the introduction into off the wall. But, um, I really, really loved when they were talking about all the the musicians and sound engineers and everyone that Michael worked with and saying about how they were all his equals, you know, like everybody was Mm -hmm. encouraged to be creatively expressive and to come up with new things. And everybody's ideas were given equal value, even though like Michael was the boss, everybody was on his, he treated everybody as if they were on his level Everybody, everybody's values had equal weight. You know, that's, that's one of the things that also really struck with me. Yeah. I loved how Michael talked about being around all of those men, which he considered to, and were, and as you said, were his equals during the off the wall, uh, you know, writing and development. He said it was like, it was like almost like genius competition where someone would come in and say, like Rod Tempertim would come in and say, Here's a song I wrote. And Michael said that it would challenge him and inspire him to want to beat him and, and do something better. And he was saying, like, during that period of time, it was just so magical because it was like the sky was the limit in terms of creativity, in terms of what was available, um, you know, what was available for the way that uh, the music was interpreted. He just said that it was just like limitless energy and excitement throughout that entire development of that album. Um, I'm just going to get into some of the things about off the wall that were in this first section that I really loved and you guys can um, chime in. So I'm not just talking by myself, 
but I loved how, you know, I loved the beginning of Off the Wall where we had um, sort of this holistic understanding of the time period that disco was coming and sort of to contextualize the brilliance of this album that, you know, as I said earlier, this was a period of time where there was a lot of heavy metal and rock. And as Joe says, sort of a very like, like misogynistic centric male uh, experience going on in music. And so a lot of, there was actually a lot of like open repulsion towards disco so, so thinking about how this book sort of highlight came around during the time of disco, um, you know, we, it, it talked a lot about how Michael's perception, like the way he wanted to be perceived and the way Quincy Jones was thinking was, which I thought was, I thought this point was interesting, sort of like that Michael was going to be like the black young Frank Sinatra and that that's the reason why the cover art is the way it is on off the wall. That's the reason why there's such a disparate, um, you know, collection of different sorts of songs on the album. It's not all disco. It's not all ballads. It's not all funk music. They, they did a little bit of everything on this. And there, there are strings on this album. There's percussion. There's bass. There's, you know, sort of uh, syncopation coming from Michael's mouth. But they really tried to create, like, a very broadly holistic album where, uh, where some part of the music would relate to each person very much the way that Frank Sinatra uh, creates music and sort of um, has a persona of being like larger than the music itself, sort of eclipsing one specific musical genre. Um, What did you guys think about that point? I thought that that was really cool. And I also loved the fact that they were saying that that is why Michael is in a suit on the cover because they thought it would be very like um, Rat Pack-ish. And they said that Michael was like, but I still want my socks to show, (laughs) which I thought was awesome. Yeah, yeah. So what did you guys think about that comparison? That's really interesting because he does have a lot on off, a lot of diversity on off the wall that, not that his later albums aren't diverse, but they're more diverse in the same field of like pop and pop rock and R&B. But these were diverse in like, jazz and and off the wall has like jazz and it has like a duet with a female singer and it has like something like girlfriend which is like a little playtime song like a little pump curtain sweet song so it is very interesting i had never thought about it that way but yeah i could definitely see that album as positioning him as being like this this all-encompassing music man um, and not just like a pop star. Yeah, and I mean, and truly like a full-on entertainer. Like I loved, um, I loved also finding out the neat tidbit that she's out of my life was actually intentioned for Frank Sinatra, which I just can't even imagine. Wow. And Michael ended up singing it. So I guess yeah. Frank Sinatra could make that sound good too. It would be a totally different song, like. It would, the maturity level would seem totally different because Frank growling that song versus like Michael singing it in like a really sweet, high voice. It would be like coming from a teenager versus coming from like a a man who's been divorced. (laughs) Yeah. 
So, mm-hmm. but I still, I would love to hear Frank Sinatra sing She's Out of My Life. I know, I would love it too. Well, well, getting back to one of the things that we talked about earlier about the crying at the end of She's Out of My Life that Questlove discussed um, in his class. So I thought that it was an interesting point because they talked about the fact that, um, you know, talked about the fact that in that time, Michael was exquisitely lonely. And we've heard this, you know, time and time again from different people. And he said that Michael had wanted um, Tatum O'Neill to go, I guess, I think go to the Grammys with him. And her agent or her publicist or someone told her, um, he's a star, but he's not a big enough star, so don't go with him. So she didn't go with him. But Michael had perceived that as she didn't want anything to do with him. And so Tatum did an interview in Vibe magazine, and she actually said, I want you all to print so that she said, I've never been able to get back in touch with Michael. He's totally cut off from me, but I want you to print this so he'll know the reason I didn't go with him was because I was a child taking, you know, um, getting information from adults. And it had nothing to do with him. I actually really loved Michael, and I really thought that he was wonderful. And I and it's I don't know. I really hope that he was able to, to hear that because I just thought that that was really really. Um, I thought that was cool. A cool tidbit that Joe added in here that um, he does a great job of mixing in personal things about Michael like that with the analysis of the music. Another thing I love about this book, but yeah. So I'm going to get back to some of the some of the discussions about some of the songs, because in addition to sort of doing the holistic discussion, he also goes song by song and talks about the original music. Um, I think a couple of the things that he pointed out that I found to be really interesting were he talks a lot about things. So this is all new to me because I'm not a musical. I don't know a lot about music, but he talks a lot about like Michael being like riding a groove or the way that his, that he doesn't put, how, how he said Michael had a knack for understanding when to put emphasis on certain words and certain songs. And one example he gave that really stood out to me was um, the song rock with you. And I actually went back and listened to it again to see if I could hear what he was talking about. He says, you know, for a lot of singers, they might've sort of, since that's the chorus, they might've really emphasized like rock with you, like really, really sing that strongly. But he says, Michael intentionally softened the word rock to make the song sound really lyrical and flowing and easygoing. And that was like a, moment of brilliance because it was sort of intuitive to him that it needed to be a song that was more of a groove than a ballad or an anthem. So what do you guys think about that? He says Michael did a lot of nuances with power on notes in these songs because in disco era, you know, there was so much exuberance and joy and Michael certainly had that in a lot of the songs, but he's saying he really thinks that he did a brilliant job of nuancing the notes as the music went on across the album. Yeah, I mean, there were there were so many uh, moments like that in this chapter that totally caught my attention. You know, so many things that I never, ever, ever would have thought of um, that just totally separated him from other artists at the time. Um, the the thing that I remember the most was whenever he was talking about um, Quincy Jones and when he decided to work with Quincy Jones, and he kind of was like, he does movie scores, he does rock. He does jazz. He does everything, and that's what I'm gonna do. Um, that I think I feel like that totally solidifies the idea that like there there was nothing around like that at the time. There was nobody who was mm-hmm. doing what he was doing and who had this natural not just ability to do something 
right, even if it was completely different than what was happening, but, like, a will to do it right, even if it was completely different from what was happening. Mm-hmm. That rock with you um, comment in specific, I heard, I, I forget who it is, I think it might have been Ture from Rolling Stone, uh, give, similarly speak about that exact moment and how he didn't, like, he could have bursted out and, like, did a full-throat wail, and it could have been a great, like, fist-pumping moment in the song, but he, Michael didn't care about using all of his voice all the time. He cared about making an incredible song, and if that meant not showing off and showboating, then that's what it meant, and he was going to do what he thought was best for, like, the song and for the feeling. So, yeah, I've actually been, like, had that comment in my head probably September 2009 or something, whenever the special started to come out about Michael's life. And every time I listen to that song, I think about it, and it's really nice to hear that Joe finds the same thing in that song and that there's, there's more comments or there's more analysis like that, because that was the first I'd heard of it. It didn't, Rock With You always seemed remarkable in its beauty, but I, I also don't have, like, the music knowledge to um, pick it out for myself why. Yeah, I'm, I've learned a ton by reading this book. Um, there's also a cool thing about Don't Stop Till You Get Enough. So there's a lot of discussion about the introduction to Don't Stop Till You Get Enough, and we all know it, where Michael says... You know, I was wondering, you know, he says the force, it's got a lot of power, you know, all that. Well, apparently um, that is something that's like the stuff of legends and music. And uh, music critic Paul Lester calls that the introduction um, possibly the most thrilling intro to any pop single ever. And Jerry Hershey says the introduction is 10 seconds of perfect pop tension. So... We actually have a thread on our forum that talks about the introductions to Michael's songs and how he always seemed to lead into the song in a way that grabbed your attention in a really unique way that set up exactly the right tone of the song. Whether it's, you know, a song later from his career, like Stranger in Moscow, where he's, like, creating these sounds with his mouth, but then he's layering these, like, minor chords on top of it. Or, you know, for so something like Don't Stop Till You Get Enough, he knew the energy that was going to come behind that song. And so what they're saying is, you know, he built up the tension by whispering that introduction. They, you know, he could have, again, like you said, been a fist pump moment or a scream, but instead he really, in a sophisticated sort of way, like built the song up. And he kind of says, it makes me feel like, it makes me feel like, woo! And then he kind of screams and he says, like, he just did a, a really, really good job of, like, knowing how to build and build and build. And he just brought you along for that ride. And so, yeah, I just totally loved it. And I also love the fact that, you know, they said Michael was very honored and had showed a lot of humility for the fact that Paul McCartney wanted to submit Girlfriend to be on the album. Um, and so that's why it's on the album. But apparently... Many people were not pleased with <laughs> that song. And they think, and, and it's really funny. Joe says, depending on one's taste, Girlfriend is either a charmingly innocent love song or a re- regrettably saccharine Wings cover. And he says, I most love critics. Girlfriend. 
Most critics tend to side with the latter. Generally regarded as the weakest track on Off the Wall, it simply lacks the sonic excitement and adventurism of the album's dance tracks and the emotional depth of the ballads. So I love Girlfriend, but it's one of those songs that when I think of Girlfriend, I don't think of Off the Wall. Because that's one of the points that really stuck out to me, too, was, like, the thought of it being, like, a Wings jam. Like, when I think of Girlfriend, I just think of Girlfriend. I I still, like, it kind of surprises me if I'm listening to Off the Wall as an album and then all of a sudden Girlfriend's playing. Like, it, yes. it slowly I, I takes disagree. me out of it. I mean, I, I love it. I think, I think it's, it's a great song. The album. And I think it, it fits right into the whole idea of it being, like, the young black Frank Sinatra. Like, Frank Sinatra would totally do a, a little ditty like that. Just not, not a song that's supposed to be emotionally rousing or like like super musically impressive but just like a real sweet pretty little song i i think it's perfect and i love it <laughs> well i have to say that i agree with larth on this one because when i did go back and re-listen to off the wall now that i've read the analysis and i was listening for all of these nuances that joe talks about michael including in each song and i was just getting more and more like oh my gosh this man is a genius when Girlfriend came on, I didn't dislike it because I've never disliked that song, but I I did feel like it maybe didn't capture my imagination the way that the other songs do. And this is coming from someone whose favorite album of all time is Off the Walls. So I don't know. I, I It was funny because I always felt a little bit guilty that I didn't love Girlfriend as much as the rest of the songs, and now I feel like I'm validated, but maybe not. I don't know. Ivy Jivy is still Girlfriend's number one fan, and we'll remember that. Um <laughs> I would say the song that I picked up so much more love for after reading the analysis was Get On The Floor. Oh, yeah. Man. That song is the bomb.com. Like, I was, I cannot, I can't stop listening to it. I think it is just the best song ever. Like, especially at the end, and Joe even talks about how Michael, like, laughs at the end and how he, that's the first time we're really, really hearing his oohs and hee-hees and all that. It's like, he says, the song is, quite simply, a celebration of life, music, and dance. And that's exactly what I felt. Um, I used to always feel like nothing would eclipse my love and burn this disco out in terms of, like, just getting down for the get down. But, man, Get on the Floor is amazing. And, yes, it was written and composed by Michael Jackson and Louis Johnson. I never, until Genius I read this book, I never noticed how great the laughing in the song was and just how perfectly fitting yes. it was. Yes. It's like it just fits, so I never it never I never stopped to think like wow, he's just laughing. Yeah. <laughs> he was just having a time of his life singing it. It was so obvious that he just loved that song. Like that was my favorite part about it is knowing that he was in the booth just jamming hard and laughing, like sheer joy of the fact that he was like doing such an amazing song. I just I love the I love the fact that we were allowed to be a part of that with him. I just love it so much. Um so I know I'm going to go on just to wrap this up because I could talk about this all day. There's one more point I wanted to bring up. Um, so something else about this book that is amazing is in addition to talking about the albums, Joe also does a section where he talks about other notable off-the-wall era songs. And he highlights Blame It on the Boogie, Can You Feel It, Destiny, Ease On Down the Road, This Place Hotel, Love Never Felt So Good, Lovely One, Shake Your Body, Sunset Driver, This Is It, Walk Right Now, and You Can't Win. Um, oh, yeah. what a good collection of songs. Like, every, like, if anyone has a question, 
about the off the wall era Michael just being like the best thing ever. Look at the other songs he wrote during that era. That collection that I just listed, like Love Never Felt So Good. Uh, I, I can't even des- describe to you how much I love. I can listen. I can't. I'm having a moment. But he talks about one, one thing that's so awesome is he talks about This Place Hotel, which I really, really, really love that song. And he says that um, they, it used to be called Heartbreak Hotel. And it had to be renamed because of his, you know, future father-in-law's famous song by the last name. But he says that he considers that to be a watershed track for Michael because it was written, arranged, and composed entirely by Michael, and it revealed his rapidly emerging talent as a songwriter. And he talks about how it's dark and a psychological song, and he says that it's one of the first songs ever that um, that sort of incorporated using, like, almost like, a cinematic use of sound effects, horror film motifs, and vocal trickery to convey a sense of danger in his work. And so I went back and listened to that song just before we did the podcast. And he's totally right. Like the scream at the beginning lets you know it's going to be a song about something serious. That kind of sound of like when they're doing the, um, you know, it sounds almost like a door slamming over and over again in the middle of the song before they start singing the chorus. And it, it really is it's really cool to think that Michael was already thinking before thriller about finding ways to give you certain feelings of foreboding when you listen to a song. And so I was really thrilled to find out that that song was all Michael. Like it wasn't even a collaboration. Most, a lot of the other songs he collaborated with other people, but, um, that one was all him. And so I, again, I, I had the best time reading this chapter and the introduction. They both really moved me as I'm sure you can tell. And I cannot wait to read the next segment of the book, which is on Thriller, which I'm sure is going to be a thrilling section. So for our next reading assignment, we stopped on page 53. We will read to page, there's a huge section on Thriller, actually. We will read to page 91, which is the end of the Thriller section. So actually, I guess it's about the same length as this one, a little bit shorter than the introduction in the first chapter. So everybody, pick up this book. We're going to read the chapter two on Thriller, page 54, 54 to 91. And when we do our next full show in two weeks, we will discuss it. Do you guys have any uh, closing thoughts on this section on Off the Wall? Nope. Sounds great, though. I can't wait to co- go back, read it over again, and go through each track just like you did. Um, anything else from you, Lars? I mean, I, I've said all I needed to say. I'm obsessed with this book. And yes. I think it shows that we are all pretty yeah. much obsessed. And and I we've got a great conversation going on our forum and in the section um in the section for our book club, we have a thread for this book and members are discussing it as they're reading it. Thanks again, members and Twitter followers who are giving us points to discuss on the show. Please keep that up. And I think we're going to move on, so get reading on the thriller section. We've just got two more quick things to cover before we go. First is we need to talk about our members of the week and posts of the week and Twitter followers of the week, and then we're going to wrap up. So this week, we've got two great people to highlight from our forum. First, for the member of the week. We have selected, drum roll please, 
JVF Smile, who is such an amazing member of our forum. You guys might remember her best because when she started on the forum, she was posting, and then she actually approached us as administrators and asked us if she could write a blog about being a person that lives with vitiligo. And she wrote an incredibly inspiring, informative, and moving blog that was on our front page, and I believe what should still be up for you all to read, um, about how the vitiligo connects her to Michael, and she really has such a unique perspective. I highly recommend that you read her blog. But in addition to that, she also is just someone who really contributes a lot to the overall um, perspective that's on our forum, lots of intellectual discussion. She's very knowledgeable about music, about everything related to Michael's life, and is always a great friend to all of our members. She's all around a phenomenal member. We love her. We thank her for her contributions. You guys should make sure that you congratulate her for this honor because she totally deserves it. For the post of the week, we have got an awesome, awesome post that is a new blog on our forum by LJ Mrs. MJ. She's a member of our forum, and she had a phenomenal experience of going to the Jackson Brothers Unity Tour um, when it came through her area. She not only went to the tour, but she purchased the VIP All Access Pass, which allowed her to meet the Jacksons in a meet and greet, and then sit front and center to experience the concert. So she's got some wonderful pictures. Um, she tells her entire story about how she got to the concert, what it was like to meet the brothers, what it was like to be up close and personal. And I, it's such a treat. And for anyone that's a fan of the Jacksons as a whole, you should absolutely read her blog and check out her pictures. It's really, really cool. And we all really appreciate her taking the time to share that with us. <laughs> so congratulations again to JVF Smile and to LJ Mrs. MJ for being selected as member of the week and poster of the week. Um, please make sure that you all check out that information. And finally, on Twitter, we would like to recognize Taylin S. as our tweeter of the week. She is a member of the MJ fam and always tweets lots of great things about Michael. Um, and she always is very interactive with the Posmic Twitter. We always enjoy reading her comments, and we think that you guys should check her out. Her Twitter is at Taylin S. T-A-E-L-Y-N-S. So check out her Twitter. She talks about lots of things on there, but she has a huge love of Michael, and it shows. So those are our highlighted members of the week. Do you guys have anything to add about those selections? No, just thank congrats to everyone, and thank you so much for being so involved with us. Yes, totally agree. And so from that, I think the last point is just to wrap up the show. Thank you guys so much for all of your support. As we said earlier, you can check out our forum, PositivelyMichael.com. Uh, we've got a new front page, which is very exciting. You guys can check that out. You can also follow our Twitter, which is at PosMike. You can check us out on Facebook. And you can always subscribe to our show through Blueberry or through iTunes. We love all comments, all feedback. And finally, for all general questions, comments, concerns, etc., you can comment on our forum in our podcast section, or you can email us at positivelymichael at gmail.com. So that will wrap up our show for this week. We want to thank Sparkle Socks for joining us and giving us her musical insights, Ivy and Lars for joining in. And as Glittery Socks, I will sign off and say lay back in our tenderness, and we'll see you in our next show. Have a great week. Bye.